Welcome to the podcast where heavy industrial industries meet the venture capital ecosystem, interviewing both thought-leading investors and pioneering founders to better understand the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead for digital industrial innovation. Your host is Ty Finley, and this is the Heavy Hitters Podcast. Hugh Evans joins us today from New Orleans. Hugh is the founder and manager of Additive Manufacturing Ventures Group, a new group of experienced 3D printing executives that banded together to invest specifically in additive manufacturing capabilities. Prior to founding AMVG, he was the head of corporate development and ventures for 3D Systems. And prior to joining 3D Systems in 2013, Hugh had a 22-year career at T. Rowe Price, where he started as a chemicals analyst, then was a small cap portfolio manager, and eventually the head of private equity. Hugh has an expansive investment career, having invested in over 500 companies in tier one venture capital funds during his time at T. Rowe Price. And he created many of the 3D systems business verticals, ranging from dental to food to bioprinting and a subtractive additive metal joint venture. Hugh, uh, clearly I'm talking to the right person to host a chat about additive manufacturing, taking the spotlight. So really appreciate you coming on the heavy hitters. I'm glad to be here, Ty. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. Well, it's awesome to have someone on the show who's spent decades in the high finance industry and equally has a deep operating experience within such a key digital industrial application like added manufacturing. So I, I gave a snapshot, but give our listeners some more color on your background that led you to founding the added manufacturing ventures group. And really what was that hook along the way to, that, that had you go all in on digital industrial? Yeah. So uh, the start of my journey in this space was really in 2003. I remember taking a trip to the laboratories of 3d systems uh, and seeing an SLA machine in action and watching the the blue dot laser jumping from spot to spot. And I remember at that time saying to myself, wow, this is gonna change the world. And um, the I couldn't really tell you how it was gonna change the world at that time, but I just, it's something inside of me said that this, uh, that this was such a powerful tool. And even people today who have been in the field 35, longer than me, 30, 35 years, uh, we we still gather at the at the SLA machine and look at the blue dot jumping around and, and it never it just never gets old to see these parts being made in this method. So in 2003, I when I was at T Rowe Price, I made uh, a pipe investment in 3D systems. Uh, it was a really a rescue investment, uh, and um, and we took a 20% position in 3D systems at that time, and the uh, that. Uh, fortuitously turned out to be one of the, the great investments really of all time at, at T. Rowe Price Small Cap. And uh, so I've been laboring in this vineyard really for 18, 19 years, going back to my, my days as an investor at T. Rowe Price. In 2013, I left T. Rowe and joined 3D Systems. So in my parlance, I went from ownership to management I joined the management team and I was at 3D Systems for six years and ran corporate development. And um, it was, I call them six dog years, uh, very, very busy, active global assignments. And I left uh, 3D Systems at the beginning of 2019 and have banded together with uh, four or five uh, executives from the industry who are who are either who are out, who have left their companies, and uh, we have formed an investment group we call uh, AMVG. And as of today, 
uh, we have made uh, um, 12 investments in different 3D printing startups. So uh, just, and to bring this to a close, when I think of the hook, that was, I think your question, the hook for me is that uh, there's tremendous wealth creation opportunity in digital manufacturing. Uh, the sector is extremely intellectually stimulating. All the things that you work on on a daily basis is, is thrilling. And there's a legitimate social impact, a beneficial social impact uh, to a lot of the projects. So uh, to me, that's the trifecta. No, no question. A, a financial opportunity, um, sustainability is the topic of the day, and this can drive a lot of impact. And I love how you brought it up. Just SLA is pretty dang cool to watch. And I think everyone watched the carbon machine pull the ball out of the liquid of goo. I mean, it's just this is a fun category to be um, to be in right now. So enough so that you did commit yourself into founding AMVG. So maybe get a little more granular on what AMVG's investment strategy is and how your fund likes to differentiate. Yeah. Okay. And to to uh, just to uh, differentiate that we don't really run a fund. We are a investment group, uh, and the uh, in the group are. People like the former chairman of 3D Systems for 30 years, Wally Lombaum, and the former head of the uh, founders of um, Solid Concepts and head of Stratasys Direct, Joe Allison, um, the former head of medical modeling, which is a, which is now the 3D Systems uh, Denver facility. That's Andy Christensen. And so it's a collection of, and there's others, and there's a collection of founders and CEOs from the industry. And we come together and we... Um, we, to, to the entrepreneur that we might be funding, we look like a fund. We uh, do diligence together. We, you know, we, we, we negotiate together. We do governance together. But it, when it comes to uh, investing in the company, we're each writing our own checks. So it's a little, little bit unique. I don't know exactly what to call that, maybe a consortium. Uh, but to the entrepreneur, we look like a fund. To ourselves, we're investing our own balance sheets. Um, we... Go ahead, hi. Sure, I was just going to say, what what stage do you guys invest in, and any particular uh, sectors within this broader world of additive manufacturing? Yeah, we we are uh, typically stage agnostic. We've looked at some some. Uh, we've been the first check in in a couple, and we've looked at some very mature, fairly sizable uh, transactions. So we're not. Um, we are interested in deals that we just find appealing and and uh, it can be anywhere from early to later stage. Uh, we have, uh, given the the operators we have in the group, um, we, we the portfolio is really equally weighted across the four sectors that I divide additive manufacturing into. And it's really digital manufacturing because because additive is all about workflows. And so that so the four sectors are software, hardware, materials, and applications. And so we happen to have two investments in software, two investments in hardware, two investments in materials, and four investments in applications. And just think of applications as a company that's taking the tools of additive and applying it to, the, to, to, to a new market or to a deeper dive in an existing market. Um, so, so really across, you know, we're sort of, uh, dollar weighted, equal weighted across those four sectors, and we're agnostic to uh, um, uh, any of the individual sectors. We just go where we think the, the returns are highest. 
And, and clearly with that group, you know, could add a massive amount of value. You guys know a little bit about digital manufacturing from that DNA. So I'm sure folks are happy to have you on the cap table. And maybe a little tangent to this whole point. What I'm seeing, and they, they often love to fly under the radar, somewhat like your your group, you banded together with these these folks that know the industry as well as anyone. I'm seeing more of these really specialized syndicates of former executive operators with that deep domain expertise to bring to a cap table, maybe, maybe smaller check than maybe traditional venture funds, if we'll think of it that way. So do you think we're going to see more and more of these, I, I don't know, I'll call them stealthy syndicates form given the explosion of, of venture into the asset class? And and the fun note on that, just because PitchBook put out the Venture Monitor report recently, they said in 2020 alone, VC firms raised a record $73.6 bucks across 321 funds. And that's just from the funds specifically. And U.S. venture deal value topped $150 billion for the first time. So clearly it's becoming more accessible to everyone. Do you think more of those groups like AMVG are going to pop up? Uh, I do. I, I do. To, to me, just because the look, the VCs, a uh, huge amount of capital is poured into traditional VC. And many VCs have moved, you know, just to get to put that the money up to work that they've raised. I mean, the. The VC that used to raise a $100 million fund is now, has now raised a $500 million fund. They're moving upscale. Uh, uh, and so the, the sort of earlier stage or formation stage has been a little bit abandoned. Um, the, the angel investing is, is fraught with difficulty. I think it's very difficult to be an angel investor with, without real domain expertise. So, so groups like ours, I think, sort of bridge that gap between you know, a generalist angel investor who quite, won't quite know what they're doing. And then the larger VC firms that, you know, as I say, you know, we're doing the deals that I'm going to hand off to the larger VC, VC guys in a year or two. And, um, and so and what we can do with our group, at least, and I imagine this is true for other groups, is that when we come into a deal, we actually can recruit other capital. And that happens almost in every transaction we do. Once we commit to it, we can usually bring other investors who aren't experts, but who want to essentially go along on, on some of our decision, decision making. Love it. I definitely think that's how the future and, and great deal flow um, coming out of groups like yours, no question. Uh, okay, so now bringing us back to the topic of the day, I think there's no question in added manufacturing, digital manufacturing, however we want to bucket it, is a hot topic right now. In just the venture-backed ecosystem, desktop metals now trading, I think it was nearly six and a half, six, nine billion market cap when I last checked. 3D Hubs had a $280 million acquisition by Protolabs. Fast Radius in our portfolio is ramping up globally. We're all watching core partners in Chicago quietly rolling up its Fathom platform. And then obviously you guys at AMVG actively supporting some amazing earlier stage companies, later stage. So it's hard to keep up with all this stuff. All that said, those of us deep in the ecosystem know reality always comes back to unit economics and this well-tread cost per unit versus units produced mass production additive cost curve. The chart has definitely made dramatic progress in the last decade, but we all know still it has some maturity to go versus the traditional manufacturing methods that stacks up CNC, injection molding, et cetera. So build up there. You're as close to this progression as anyone, obviously. Something clearly feels different now. What, Hugh, what's changed inflected to drive all this deal activity now? Well, good question, Ty. You know, I, I'm tempted to say I've never seen anything like it, but actually I have seen something like it, which was called 2013. So um, I've lived through 2013 at 3D Systems, and that was a tremendous run in the equity uh, prices of all the shares, and then a tremendous amount of deal activity and capital raising. And 
Um, so uh, seven years later, it, it appears to be a, a replay uh, eight years later, but it's not quite a replay. The 2013 period was really driven by consumer, the, the excitement around consumer printing and whether that would be essentially 3D printers would essentially be a household item. And, um, and today's activity is really more industrial based, which I consider more real. Uh, so, so there is a fundamental difference between the current environment and that environment. The, the, I think something, something happened meaningfully, which has, which has impacted the sector. Uh, it's called COVID. And, um, Every hospital was short of PPE and other supplies during COVID, and most companies are short of um, parts and supplies uh, in their supply chain. And COVID, the disruption that COVID nineteen has brought to supply chains, certainly in medical, but I'm I'm looking at a lot of uh, supply chain managers and industrials as well who have concluded that very just long tail just-in-time supply chains that extend deep into Asia uh, has enormous risk to it. And, it, and that this sort of always going further afield for, to try to save one penny is, um, I think that mentality has literally just been broken. And that there is a mentality among uh, industrial companies that says we want to uh, create more resilient and redundant supply chains. I know this is the case in medical because uh, lives are depending on it. And we we are looking to reform our supply chains around, uh, you know, onshore is a major part of that and bring stuff home, if you will. And uh, the starting point for a lot of the companies on that is spare parts. They want to bring production of spare parts from overseas to the U.S. There's a real spare part shortage in almost any category, cars, bikes, boats, there's there's no spare parts, Ship, ships. I mean, there's spare part shortages everywhere. Uh, so a lot of the projects that I see right now are uh, onshoring of spare parts, uh, and in medical, uh, I would say uh, everything. <laughs> the, the hospitals and the, uh, really want to understand their supply base really within like a 200 mile radius of the hospital. There really is a commitment, I think, in healthcare toward local local localization. So COVID really. You know, change some things, and these changes take time for sure. But I think there is an appetite, a willingness uh, among companies to revisit the whole way they do supply chain. No, no question. And all the themes you mentioned, you know, even uh, watching new construction methods for for housing crisis. It seems like additive, and we have portfolio company Icon. It's it's there's all kinds of use cases that are exploding and it's I, I think due in part the capital is available to to take take a leap of faith with them and, and and help accelerate all the challenges we know that are still out there you know so the question there is you know this idea of SPACs has really promoted a lot of growth in this category any general thoughts on on the proliferation of SPACs in the ecosystem? Well, you know, I was uh, I've, I'm a skeptic of SPACs because they uh, they. Um, they come and go in the public markets, and and um, but I'm I just saw a presentation recently from someone who explains that these facts are here to stay and gave the reasons, and it was a much more legit thing than I than I expected. I was uh, found myself swayed by the arguments of how SPACs might be a 
uh, a, a tool, an IPO tool that is going to be more employed moving forward than ever. Certainly, desktop metal merging into a SPAC is part of uh, the sort of excitement that was uh, a path, and and I expect that there are other 3D printing companies that are probably on the path to into a SPAC as well. Right. And then we, we did talk about that there are still challenges to overcome, as you've seen the second wave now approach, uh, hopefully here to stay. What are some of those key bottlenecks challenges you think we still have to face in this this broader category? Well, the uh, everything starts with cost, right? What's the cost to make it in this method rather than that method? And um, one of the one of the keys to uh, assessing your TCO, your total cost of ownership, is uh, also should factor in you know a cost of logistics, a cost of shipping, and a cost of uh, outage, you know, what's the price of being out, of stocking out? <laughs> That's a huge cost. So, uh, but uh, companies assessing the cost of an ind- individual component is a starting point, uh, usually for whether they go, which method they're going to go to for manufacturing a certain thing. Um, then the speed of the of the printer in this case is uh, is a key factor because. Uh, even if you could compete on cost, if you can't print the parts fast enough and it's going to take, you know, 3,000 printers to equal what uh, uh, what the output that you need for a given um, assembly line, that just won't work, right? And so the, the speed of the, the printers is going up every year. I mean, it's on Moore's Law, the speeds. So they're solving for speed. So cost and speed. And then the third is materials, uh, are, is the material set of, uh, that can come out of the printer, um, is it a, are the materials available that would test uh, favorably versus current materials? And if they don't, then it's a non-starter. There's no point in even looking at it, deploying additive manufacturing if you don't have a material set that's essentially equal to the part you're making uh, through injection molding or through any other uh, process. So, uh, and one of the reasons that metal printing has has been accelerating so much is that they're using our pre-validated materials. All the all the materials going into metal printers are essentially been around for forty years and are proven powders that are used in uh, across the industry. And none of that has to be revalidated. So, if you the same, you know, inconel that they're putting in the printer has been used in casting uh, uh, for for many many years. So you're already starting with validated materials. Um, so those are those are the three traditional ones, right? Cost, speed, and materials. And then the fourth friction point, if you will, is just dealing with supply chain managers. Anybody who who hasn't dealt with a supply chain manager should know this is a very very conservative animal. Uh, they're paid to be cautious for good reasons. And so um, winning over supply chain man- managers is a long hard process. Um, and then finally, uh, I think another uh, sort of friction point that is being solved but needs to be solved is uh, QA and QC tools. So there has to be the tool sets to be able to say that the article coming out of the printer meets all the specifications, has the track and trace requirements, um, batch level analysis so that if there's a part failure that all the all the data is available for effectively doing a failure cost analysis. And um, that's a requirement in uh, almost every regulated industry. And so those tools are coming, but the the tools have to be developed alongside deployment of the printers. 
Yeah, I think one, two, and three, like you said, we've we've been talking about for a while. It's great to see four and five highlighted because I do think once once you have the technology ready to go, there is a massive supply chain, and I'll call it generally production ops that has to be done really well because these are mission critical uh, pieces of hardware per se. So I'm glad to see more attention. I think there's a lot of value in the, I guess they call it the profit pool to be had in both of those as well. So, um, so maybe switching us away from deal activity, you know, financial markets outlook, let's, let's discuss emerging early stage trends within this ecosystem. And I, I believe there are additive opportunities to me across the design, build, distribute, and operate, as I like to call it, end-to-end value chain of, of what is a global supply chain. And you've kind of walked through some of that earlier as well. And, and to note to me, many of which have nothing to do with hardware and or material science that I that I, I think is critical, in, but is often immediately bucketed into this conversation somehow, some way. So our listeners would love to hear what what do you think are some of those hot trends as you look across your four sectors you're um, you're looking to find investments in. Yeah, so we look at uh, we look beyond just industrial. So I'm going to focus on industrial, but just be aware, you know, we have a major project in food printing, we have a major project in bioprinting. So we, you know, uh, one of the really enjoyable and fascinating and profitable features of the explosion, the Cambrian explosion, the second Cambrian explosion, maybe, is that you know uh, digital tool sets are penetrating existing markets in a much deeper way, but then they're migrating into new, completely new verticals, and so that that's always enjoyable. Um, but within just you might say traditional, you know, smokestack industry, um, it's it, it, you know people are talking about industry 4.0. I think a lot of people not even sure what that means. Um, I think of it as, you know, the digital manufacturing is about workflows and what you need on a workflow is a validated design and approved material. And so without those, you know, you don't have anything. And so, but the, the, one of the big transition points that is, that we're literally in the middle of uh, for the, uh, the additive manufacturing OEMs is that prototyping the industry has lived on prototyping really over the last 20, 25 years. It's been a prototyping business and prototyping is attractive um, and it's got growth metrics, but it's not nearly as attractive as actually manufacturing and making end use parts with these tools because some end use, end use cases are much higher volume than the prototyping. And fundamentally a prototyping printer is, you know, you'll print the part for the R and D group for engineering the part will be tested, it'll be destroyed, it'll be thrown away. And it's just a lot, fundamentally, the risk of a failure of a pro, in prototyping is low, and the risk of a failure in manufacturing is high. So it's, a, it's almost like two different businesses. The prototyping business is a box-moving business, and manufacturing is an applications and solutions business. And so the industry is very much in transition from prototyping to manufacturing, and the, the skills required are completely different. Uh, the validation tools are completely different. The material sets are completely different, which is almost like a separate. It's, it's really a solutions business at the manufacturing level. And that requires lots of input on the digital side, the, the design file, the way the, the way the information flows, how the article is printed or machined. You know, it could, could be CNC, right? However it's manufactured. And the post-processing that has to take place, and then the 
And all that has to be recorded in a digital workflow uh, dashboard, if you will, to do it right. And, and many, many companies are still using clipboards for this type of, you know, watching the flow of, across a factory. So there's a tremendous opportunity, I think, that to stitch together, you know, and it's almost beyond, it's not MES, it's beyond MES, a, uh, a ability to sort of track your factory environment from digital design and CAD all the way to, hey, we've got this pallet of parts ready to go out. And that's a very exciting trend uh, for me. It's, a, it's spot on. And we had Rick Bellata, one of the pioneers in the industrial IoT wave, uh, come on and talk about this exact thing, needing data standardization, needing data integrated, because unless that metadata is tracked along the progression of an entire, if we use the word additive production cycle, uh, we, we won't get there yet. So I couldn't agree more with you on that. Um, so Hugh, when I previously I've written and spoken about the need for sector focused specialization for all the nuances that you're mentioning about this category specifically so that you can compete in today's hyper competitive venture market and have an, an edge in these emerging categories that in my opinion scale differently than traditional enterprise IT. And so your background at T. Rowe Price investing across several tier one VC firms, it really gave you an insight into trends forming along these lines. And so is sector-focused differentiation becoming important to driving returns? And what are the benefits of having this focus? And, and how do you see that accelerating going forward? Well, yes, uh, uh, yeah, for sure. That sector uh, sector focus is incredibly import, important in my view. And especially as you go early into the earlier stage of the companies. I, gener I generally view the earlier stage of company is more of a talent search where sector experience can be a meaningful um, contributor to the analysis of the opportunity. As you get later in companies and at scale and grow, then I think generalists can take over, right? You can, a generalist can assess a scale and grow situation, I think more capably than, um, than a generalist can assess, you know, an earlier stage uh, opportunity. So I, I, you know, I think specialization is especially important in the in the um, beginning of the of the company or the project. Um, you know, I would also say that we have found this at AMVG. I mean, it's like all over the place, to be honest. Which is specialization creates portfolio network effects for our companies. I mean, I can't almost across all of our companies we've recommended other companies that they could access and uh, for expertise and hiring and knowledge and relationships. And so um, by, by essentially having that experience curve, I can make recommendations to my portfolio companies from you know either within our portfolio for help within our portfolio or just stuff I know from the industry. And so that becomes very meaningful to the entrepreneurs. It's a great point about uh, the portfolio effect. I, I wasn't thinking about it that way, but you're spot on. I, I can imagine talent and, to your point, capital on the next stage of their journey. Um, there is definitely a flywheel effect within your AMV port portfolio companies, I'm sure. Um, maybe bringing it back to the the founders here, any words of wisdom for those that are raising venture capital? Um, what gets you excited about those companies when they're approaching AMVG? And we always like to break it apart and hey, you should be doing this as you approach us, keys to success, if you will. And then here are some common pitfalls and challenges to avoid as you're approaching that conversation. What, what comes to mind? Uh, I think maybe a little differently than others. Um, um, we, we like real world experience. Uh, 
because uh, we have it. And so uh, we look for that. And so we like maybe a more seasoned entrepreneur, if that's accurate. We, you know, I think we probably screen as a having a little older cohort of entrepreneurs in our group, and that's fine with us. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, between the sort of 26-year-old uh, Cracker Jack coming out of MIT and the 40-year-old, you know, who's, who's, who's done, done, you know, run a factory, we would skew toward the 40-year-old, but not exclusively. But that that's sort of, you know, something for us. We really put a put a put a value on uh, what we would call, you know, real world, world experience. Um, the other thing I mentioned is that the uh, the if you if you have an application mindset, which we do, uh, the to push 3D printing into um, different sectors, what you really need is someone who really understands 3D printing and someone who really understands the sector. Uh, so we're looking at a toy investment right now. We need someone who really understands how to print the toys and we need someone who really understands the toy industry. And so, so those two factors together, as you, as you push into new verticals, you have to, uh, we're looking for this combined talent pool of, you know, uh, industry sector uh, knowledge, but also 3D printing knowledge. And any common challenges to say, hey, as you're preparing your deck or, or thinking about pitching to, to really be focused in on uh, so we have a good conversation? Yeah. So when we look at when we do conversations, I want to see your microeconomics uh, and I'll make my own projections. So you don't really need to, like, give me um, a projection sheet and spend time on that. I want to see your your unit economics and then we'll I can essentially do my own projections from that. Um, I, and I'm a big believer. I coach the companies to follow the Sequoia pitch deck template. It's on their website. It's been vetted, uh, and less is more in this category. There's 10 slides, uh, hit the 10 sectors, hit them at a high level, put the backup material in the appendix, uh, and don't, don't try to kill overkill with, uh, with small print and more and, and data. Um, Less is more in pitch deck development. Uh, I'm with you on, on both. It's not exclusive, but love to see the domain expertise somewhere around the table. And then uh, the less is more in a pitch deck. It, it's true. Let's let's just have a discussion. But all great tactical advice there. So Hugh, let's let's wrap up. We always have a quick fire. We call quick hitters, rapid Q and A. So if you're ready to launch into it, we'll get going. Let's do it. All right. Number one thing you look for when evaluating digital industrial founding teams. Realism. One resource, book, podcast, blog you'd recommend to our audience to follow in this ecosystem. Yeah, I uh, get value out of the daily um, uh, email from 3dprint.com. They have some pretty good reporters who cover the industry. Uh, all the all the sort of media groups uh, scrape each other's websites. So it's not like you'll miss uh, anything depending on, but I use 3dprint.com and I know some of the reporters there and they they, they do a pretty good job. Uh, more on an annual basis, I'm a big believer that the AMUG conference, Additive Manufacturing Users Group, is a once-a-year conference. These are the sort of most seasoned users who meet uh, and have a teach-in, effectively, of, of what they're doing in there. So it's experts talking to experts, and but anyone can go and listen in, and I get a lot of value out of this. Look, you could go to a conference every week in, in Additive. I find the AMUG conference to be the most useful in terms of what's really happening out there. De definitely missing AMUG. I'll, I'll give a shout out to Rapid too. I'd, I'd put those two on everyone's radar. But uh, hopefully we get back to um, 
those conferences soon enough. One person who should be on the podcast. Um, well, in this category, uh, a friend of mine um, that I would recommend for you, Ty, is uh, Greg Elfering. Greg is the was the head of uh, sales at 3D Systems in my years there, and he he uh, is now the head of North America for Ultimaker, and Ultimaker is a surprisingly successful company. Uh, and I think he would be a, uh, a good uh, voice to uh, explain how Ultimaker's done it and how FDM stacks up, uh, as he might say, favorably uh, relative to the other print engines that exist in additive. Um, and um, yeah, that'd be a recommendation. Great. And then finally, best way for folks to reach out to you, Hugh? I'm happy to hear from anyone. Um, an open open door. My uh, by email, you can reach me at hme3saints at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, as someone who's lived the 2013 cycle and now uh, all the activity going on now, it's just really awesome to be able to share your lessons learned with our audience and and just a sincere thanks again for jumping on the heavy hitters. Happy to do it, Ty. Thanks for having me. See you soon.